Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. Well, good morning, South Valley. Great to see you. How is everybody doing today? You guys sound like you're having a great morning. I love it. I love it. I love the excitement, the energy. Thank you, John. Thank you, worship team, for leading us today. And John and them, they had a really busy week. I actually got to see it. Lemoore High School, they had a cool Mamma Mia play last week. Did anybody go to see that? That that was pretty awesome. You guys did a great job with that. And thank you, John, for helping with that. Now, today is a really special morning because today you're actually going to get to hear from one of my best friends. This is Matt Greeno. Matt Greeno is not my brother, by the way, okay? People were going up to Matt Greeno thinking Matt was me. Matt just uh, wants to be like, no, I don't know. I don't know. We're, we just happen to look alike. Uh, but so, so this is Matt. Matt was one of my best friends in high school and has continued to be one of my best friends. And uh, he's a pastor now, and he's here to share with us today. He's wrapping up the Theology 101 series. But I, I wanted to start with an interview with Matt Greeno because here's the thing. Matt, in, in seven years of ministry, he's actually never shared his story with, with the church. Uh, everybody on staff knows his story. People close to him know his story, but he's never actually shared it in a, in a public forum, and, and you'll kind of hear why in just a moment. So I wanted to start by interviewing Matt, and then he's going to wrap up our series with a sermon on the church, okay? So will you guys help me welcome Matt Greeno? That's cool. Appreciate it. Good morning. Good morning. All right, Matt. So uh, I'm super happy you're with us today, and uh, thank you for coming. I know this is a crazy busy season in your life. Mm -hmm. You have a baby on the way, a baby boy on the way, so that's exciting. First child, yeah. You're leading a phenomenal ministry. So he's from Palmdale, where I'm from, leading a phenomenal ministry out Mm -hmm. there. Uh, You're just just graduated Bible college, and now you're in seminary, so you're working on your master's degree. So you got a lot going on in your life. How are you balancing? All of that stuff, and thanks for fitting us in into your schedule. So, how are you yeah. balancing all of it? Well, right now I am doing all of those things. I think the hardest part is trying to get my house ready to welcome a new child into the world. It's my wife and I's first child, and working on a master's of divinity is not the easiest thing in the world to pull off at the same time. So. What's been probably helping me the most right now is one of my mentors told me that if you're busy and things start getting blurry to the point you can't capture that moment and appreciate the moment, then something is probably wrong. And so right now what I'm doing is just gauging my life. If things are getting so busy that it's blurry and I'm not appreciating my ministry, my marriage, welcoming a child into the world, working on my master's of divinity, then it's probably time to slow down. And one of my favorite quotes is, uh, if Satan can't make you sin, then he'll make you busy because both will separate you from God. And so I just try to be aware of how I'm doing spiritually and if I'm walking with God or not. Good, good, good. Yeah, you know what? Busyness is like a badge of honor in American yeah. society, right? I'm busy. How are you doing? I'm super busy. Yeah. Like, that's our typical answer. Yeah. But yeah, sometimes busyness is Self-validation. Not, it's not the best thing for us. Okay, mm-hmm. so uh, now, so you're going to share with us today, you're a pastor. You've been a pastor for about seven years. Eight. Eight. Okay, sorry. Eight years. <laughs> uh, you got an amazing ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to be preaching today. Did you yeah. ever think that this would be your story? I didn't think I was going to make it this long in life, to be 100% honest with you. Um, I didn't want this when I was a kid. I didn't grow up wanting to be a pastor. I didn't grow up thinking to myself I was uh, going to get married, have a beautiful marriage, be welcoming a child, and be you know, working on a master's of divinity to learn Greek and Hebrew and things like that. And yeah, you just don't envision this for yourself. And then God's like, like I got a plan for you, dude. Like, just sit down. Like, this is the direction that you're going, and there's a new direction for your life. And so, um, yeah, that's, that's probably that. So I want them to sense just how crazy that really is, because mm-hmm. let's rewind back to 2007. So 2007 was a huge year for Matt. That's when you graduated high school. We went to yep. the same high school together. I gra- graduated a couple of years before you. Um, so you graduate high school. Your mom, the sweetest mm-hmm. lady in the world. Leslie She's is literally great. the sweetest woman alive. Mm-hmm. And she ha- endures a, a horrendous stroke. Yeah. Right? She's paralyzed. Now. And so she's paralyzed. 
So you're going through that. Mm -hmm. You just graduated high school. You love your mom. You have a great relationship with your mom. But just like me, during that phase of life in high school, you were pretty lost yeah. on, the, on the wide path, kind of doing your own thing. Destruction. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. kind of making some bad choices. Mm -hmm. uh, so what brought you to church for the yeah. first time in the midst of all that craziness? Yeah, it was funny. When I was over here right now and Marcus was talking about Easter and stuff like that, and he said, there's, there's, a, Marcus, there's a Marcus in your life that needs an, an invitation to church. That's where I was at, South Valley. I was at the end of myself when we're singing songs and John's leading us in worship, and he's like, I've searched the world and nothing could, could fill me. Um, I know exactly what that, what that feels like. And in high school at that time, it was 2007, uh, when I graduated, I was getting sick of my sin. Um, when you're on that wide road that leads to destruction, that's the only thing you have an appetite for. And then slowly, God started to give me an appetite for, for righteousness, for truth, for justice, for good things. And then Pastor Ricky invited me to church. Uh, and what was crazy about that is the way that God used one invitation to multiply it. And then I invited my mom to church. And then Actually, you were preaching that day, and then my mom gave her life to Jesus, uh, and she's going to have a resurrected body. She's going to have a new life. She's going to be healed. She's going to be resurrected. She's going to have a new body. And yeah, so um, I was just at the end of my, my rope at that point. So. so I remember you coming to church mm -hmm. that morning. I don't know what was preached, but something landed for you. You gave your life to Jesus. Yeah. I gave him a Bible. He takes the Bible home. And uh, he's like, what do I read first? I said, well, maybe start with John or Romans. So he calls me that night. He said, hey, I read John and Romans. What do I read next? <laughs> so I'm like, all right, well, maybe just keep going from there. Like, just read the next book. And then he calls me like two days. All right, I'm done with the New Testament. Where do I go next? So he's coming to my house every single day for a week, brand new Christian, on fire for God. Like, sit, we're sitting down in, our, in my dining room talking about the Bible for hours and hours, mm -hmm. and you were just like eating it up, like yeah. asking every single question, yeah. wouldn't let me leave, just like, <laughs> I, need, I need to know right now everything you know about Jesus. I wanted the truth yes. right then. Okay, so we have this intense week of mm -hmm. learning, growing, you asking questions. I don't know how many times you read the New Testament that week, yeah. but you were, like, you were like a man on fire. And out. then all of a sudden we're supposed to meet for another meeting, and you're not there. Yeah. So you just disappeared? Yeah. So after that first week, um, I had been reading my Bible, things like that, and I read John, I read Romans. If you're new this morning, please don't start with Romans. Just pick yeah, something. that was bad advice, pick by the way. Little, a little <laughs> bit easier. I'm like, justification by fit, what? Um, but so that week goes by, and I, at that time I had a lot more questions than I had answers, and I'd always heard like the Christian phrase that you can't serve two masters, you know what I'm talking about? You can't serve, serve two masters, and so I tried to do that, and, and so I had a lot of questions about Christianity. I was, I was in, but I needed Jesus to help my unbelief, and then that weekend went to a party, so just if you're in high school or college, one night can change your life. I went to a party, and a fight broke out, and I got into a fight, and then 18 years old, I ended up in prison. So at the end of the week, Matt's in jail. Mm -hmm. Then you go before a judge, and then yep. you're sent to federal prison. State prison. State prison, sorry. State prison, yeah. It wasn't that. But it was bad <laughs> enough. Six years yeah. in prison. In fairness, so, everybody's, everybody's, everybody's okay, okay. Yes. From, uh, from that situation. Yes, everybody's that okay. Situation. So that's why, obviously, we've never shared the story. Because yeah. it's not something that you're proud of or that yeah. you like to talk about. But here's what I remember. So you go off to prison. I remember trying to work things out with the judge, trying to shorten your time. But, but they wanted to make an example out of you and your friends. And so you were there six years. Mm -hmm. And uh, for six years, God taught you in the craziest environment yeah. how to be faithful to him, how yeah. to love him, how to put him first. So how did God use six years? I remember you were in L.A., then you were in Castaic, yeah. then you were in Oklahoma. Yep. You, were, you were all over the place, right? Mm -hmm. So how did God use, redeem your prison yeah. time? It's crazy. Like hindsight really is twenty twenty, right? Like in hind it's easy to say like in the moment that God's, not faithful to you. And then I look back and I'm like, if that didn't happen, I don't know if I'd be where I am now. Um, because at some point, God has to get real to all of us. 
So, so I had a lot of questions about Christianity, but he wasn't real to me yet. Like he was transcendent, but he wasn't imminent. Like, you got to walk with me. I'm the shepherd. I'm the one who guides your life. I'll lead you to still waters. I'll make you go uh, to better places. There's a wide road that you know, and then there's this narrow um, road that you're not familiar with, but you got to follow me. And there is no one foot in, one foot out. It's all or nothing. You're either completely for Jesus or essentially judgment awaits you. And so I was just confronted with this, is he real? And then in those years, I got to experience how good God was. I read my Bible like seven times, and that was super cool, and God blessed me with that. I think it prepared me for a lot of ministry just to be familiar with the scriptures. And um, I got to experience the church as well. You know, I'd always heard Christians were judgmental, right? We always hear that we're all a bunch of hypocrites, and then people in the church are writing to me and sending flowers to my mom on Mother's Day and making sure that she's taken care of on her birthday. And I just realized it's, it's a lie. It's not true. Um, like, God, God is good. He is faithful. And his church is real and impactful and nothing like the people that I thought uh, they were. And in that time, he used that through you and through a lot of other people uh, to show me how good he is. So six years that you're there, and we'll wrap this up here pretty quick. But I remember, uh, so we had high school ministry. I had a discipleship group of guys that I was investing in. I know some of them were writing you letters. Yeah. I know, I, so I have a giant stack of letters from you, like a million letters from you. I also have your Bible. Uh, I tried to send him a big ESV study Bible, and uh, they took it from him because they said it could be used as a weapon. So, yeah. uh, so <laughs> I didn't send him anything like that anymore. So, he, But he yeah. did have a, a New King James Bible that yeah. he wrote all over and he gave it to me right when he got out and yeah. so many letters hundreds and hundreds of letters uh mm -hmm. thousands of dollars worth of phone calls you owe me by the way yeah. uh that's not cheap yeah uh, those those yeah those phone calls but anyways so you get through that I, I was going through bible college every single paper i wrote in bible college mm -hmm. i submitted it to my professor and then i submitted it to matt greeno <laughs> so uh everything that i was learning i was trying to teach him along the yeah. way and so he's learning growing gets out from there, and then how do you get out from prison and now get into ministry? What happened yeah. there? Well, number one, I just want to say you make choices. Every day people make choices, and those choices lead to, to blessing or, or to consequences. I, I'll just, full disclosure, I hate excuses. So when I, when I came home, it was like, God's real, there, there's only one, one path. And so I started, um, I started serving in the church. And then Ricky tells me one day that he's going to San Diego for it. I think it was for a Catalyst conference. It's like a massive church leadership conference. And he tells me he's going to San, to San Diego. And I'm going to be preaching that week in, in youth ministry. Gives me the keys to the church. Tells me not to burn it down. And then I ended up going to, to youth group last night. Biggest night of youth group of the year. There's nothing more awkward than a bunch of kids Like not looking even enough back chairs. In the, yeah, there's yeah. just so many, so many kids. I'm terrified. I'm like, these kids are judging me. And, um, and, but, but that was the night I knew that... There's things that you're called to, and there's things I'm called to, and there's things that this church is called to, and there's things that my church is called to, and, and we all need to be a part of this thing, and, um, and ministry is the only path for me. Um, and so then it, was, then it was college. I did my undergraduate degree. Then I started working on my master's of divinity, and here we are eight years. Well, that was a long time ago, but now I'm eight years into ministry. Um, so it's good. So that's Matt's story, guys. Can you guys give it up for Matt? What, a, Thanks, what an amazing story. Thanks, brother. And uh, yeah. I'm just really grateful that this church gets to hear from you today. I, I've seen God's hand all over your life. And, and Marcus talked about the domino effect of inviting somebody. Easter's coming. This is a chance for you to invite. You invite yeah. one person. You never know. That one person comes to the Lord. And through that person, another person comes to the yep. Lord. And we have seen over the last 10 years, we've seen countless people, friends, family members, people who were as lost as you and I yeah. that no one ever thought could be a Christian, nevertheless a pastor, yeah. right? Yep. Come to Christ, get people get into ministry, get married, build, rebuild their lives yep. because Jesus changes everything. Do you guys believe that? Yes. Jesus changes everything. Amen. 
Amen. And so that's what I want you guys to see with Matt as he shares today. He's going to talk about the importance of the church today. So I'm going to pray and let him get situated. Will you guys pray with me? Sure. Thank you, Matt. Father sure. God, I thank you so much for Matt Greeno, And I thank you that you're going to use him today, that you have used him over the last uh, decade in, in just reaching lives and making an impact. And I just thank you for his friendship. I thank you for his baby boy on the way. I pray that you'd bless him, that you'd bless Nicole. And right now as he preaches, I just pray that he would have a great time with South Valley. This is a special church and a great place to preach the word and just to talk about you and learn about you. And so we just ask that you'd bless our gathering. We love you and praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Hey, thank you, Matt. Amen. Thank you. Well, hey, thank you so much for having me this morning. Uh, My wife is actually going to be attending the next service, so she's going to be joining and get to experience South Valley as well. Before I get started, though, would you guys mind bow your heads and joining me in a prayer just so I can steady my own heart? Uh, Father in heaven, your word calls us to love our neighbors, to reach the nations. Your word describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it cuts to the deepest parts of who we are, and I pray that we would experience that today. Your word tells us that the labors are few, but it also tells us that the harvest is plentiful, and so I pray that you would use me this morning, that Eight children's volunteers might go to 58, just as Marcus said, that Easter invitations would go out and this campus would be just completely filled with people because everyone is passionate about your purpose and your mission in the world, God. I pray that as I encourage this church that you would challenge them to live on mission, to be good stewards of their spiritual gifts, and just to live with urgency to share the gospel, God. I love you. I pray that nobody leaves this place unchanged this morning. It's in your precious name that we pray. And all of God's people said... Amen. Amen. Well, I've been looking forward to preaching here. First, Ricky told me about how hungry this church is for God's word. Amen. He told me about your guys' passion for worship, which I got to experience this morning firsthand. And so that was a huge blessing to me. I get to wrap up your Theology 101 series, Understanding the Basics. So grab your Bibles, your pens, and your notebooks. I love this series because it means that everyone is a theologian. That's something Ricky has been saying. Everyone is a theologian. It's not just Augustine. It's not just Martin Luther. It's not just C.S. Lewis or Tim Keller. Every member of the body of Christ is called to have sound doctrine for at least three reasons. Number one, good doctrine develops discernment. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. One of my favorite preachers, Ricky's mentioned him, Charles Spurgeon, he said, Discernment is not just the gift of knowing right from wrong, but the gift of knowing right from almost right. God wants his children to have discernment, and that comes through having good doctrine. So Ricky mentioned that my wife and I are expecting our first child this year. I want my son to have discernment. I want him to have activities and toys and games where he looks and decides what goes with what. I want him to be able to spot subtle differences. Dad, the square is not a rectangle. Dad, the circle is not an oval. And in a similar way, God expects us to have discernment by having good doctrine. We should be able to hear about other faiths. We should be able to hear the messages of culture and say, God, those don't match. That's different than what your word teaches. So good doctrine is going to develop discernment. Number two, everybody in the church should have good doctrine because good doctrine leads to maturity. Are there any junior high or high school students in the house this morning? Any junior hires or high school students? Anybody have junior hires or high school students in your families? When I was in junior high and high school, the only thing that I cared about was being mature in my friend's eyes. But what the Apostle Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 4, if you were to read that 
passage, what he is saying is that he has given leaders to the church, people like Ricky, to help the church grow in their knowledge of the Son of God so that the church would no longer be made up of children but of mature believers. It's easy for us to get caught up and want to be seen as mature in our friend's eyes, but God wants us to grow up into maturity in our faith and be seen that way in his eyes. Good doctrine always leads to maturity in our faith. Amen? Now, good doctrine also leads to good living, or good doctrine leads to godliness would be another way to say it. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 3 says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ in the teaching that accords with godliness. There is a direct correlation between what you believe and how you behave. Good doctrine leads to godly living. So I want to start with three questions this morning. Number one, do you have discernment? Number two, are you mature in your faith? And number three, does your life match the message? Good doctrine matters. Now, today, we're going to talk about the church. And the doctrine of the church is called ecclesiology. And that means the study of the church. I'll give you a quick definition. The word church comes from the Greek word ecclesia, which means called out assembly of people. The universal church consists of all born-again believers and is made visible in the expression of local churches in the community, churches like South Valley in Lemoore. Now, the church has essentially three important um, aspects of its function. One of our functions is to equip the saints for ministry. Yes, amen? One of our functions is to edify believers. Amen? And one of our functions is to evangelize the lost. Amen? Now, today we're going to focus on the mission of God's church. And what I want you guys to know is that the church is God's plan A for reaching your community. The church is God's plan A for reaching the world. That might be frightening to some of you guys. You might be asking, is there a plan B? Because church doesn't have the best reputation in America. Church kind of has an image problem in America. God got a plan B, South Valley, there's no plan B, you're it. And so uh, that's really good news, but it's only really good news if we're all going to step into that and own that. And so the first point today, if you're taking notes, is simply this. The church is called to mission. Revolutionary, right? The church is called to mission. We know that, but what we know, there can sometimes be a disconnect between what we know and how we live. So first point, if you're taking notes today, is the church is called to mission. I want to share a quote by Tim Keller. He says, The Trinity is by nature sending. The Father sends the Son into the world to save it, and the Father and the Son send the Spirit into the world. And now the Spirit is sending the church. In short, God does not merely send the church in mission. God is in mission, and the church must join him. This also means, then, that the church does not simply have a missions department. It should wholly exist to be on mission. Being on, you can clap for that. You could talk to me. You could amen. You could hallelujah. It's not going to throw me off. Do what you got to do. The Bible does not teach that being on mission is optional. We're all called collectively to seek and to save the lost. And that's not an elective. It's a core degree requirement. It's not an elective like psychology or a math class that you would take in college. Being on mission is a core degree requirement for God's people. It's not an elective. And so something I wanted to pick up on that Ricky shared last week is that Ricky mentioned four important eras of church history. I'm not going to do a quiz, so don't worry. But he mentioned four important eras of church history. One was the patristic period. Do you guys remember that? He talked about the medieval period. He talked about the reformation period. And he talked about the modern era. Well, during that reformation period, the reformers, people like Martin Luther, they rediscovered what was called the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. 
So not only was the Roman Catholic Church engaged in the practice of selling indulgences, they were also engaged in a practice called simony. And simony is essentially the buying or selling of the priesthood or the buying or selling of a church office. It'd be like me telling you guys that if you wanted to be a pastor, I could just sell you the position. The problem is the priesthood of all believers, it doesn't belong to any one person to buy or to sell. The priesthood of all believers is given as an identity to God's people and it's something that belongs to all of us. That's the pattern that we see with both Israel and the church. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn over to Exodus chapter 19 verse 6. To them he says, you shall be to me a kingdom of what? Priests in a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then in very similar language with the church, the apostle Peter writes in his epistle in chapter 2 verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal, what? Priesthood a holy nation, and then a people, it's collective, a people for his possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. God decides who the priesthood is. He's given a mission to Israel in the Old Testament. He's given a mission to the church in the New Testament, and that mission belongs to all of us collectively to proclaim his excellencies, that he takes people out of the domain of darkness and brings them into the kingdom of the beloved son. Amen? He's good like that. And he wants everybody to be a part of this. And so what I want to ask you this morning is, are you guys depending too much on Ricky? Are you depending too much on Marcus, John, and Seth? If you can't say amen, say ouch. Sharing the gospel is best done by those who have access, those who have proximity and intimacy because you're always around them so you have credibility to call them to Christ. There are people in your life, to John's point, that need to hear the gospel. The question is, are you sharing the good news? Are you sharing the good news? And as you do that, you might encounter some pushback. You might have somebody that you share the gospel with, a family member or a friend that says they don't feel worthy of God's love or God's grace. You might be new this morning and you don't feel worthy of God's love or God's grace. Good news, I didn't either. And it is true that the Bible teaches we're not worthy of God's grace or God's love, but it doesn't teach that we're worthless What it does say is that we're created in the image of God. That's in the book of Genesis. When Jesus wanted to teach about the value of humans in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, 26, he said, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? People are valuable. We're not worthy, but we're not worthless. And that's proven by the truth that nothing in this world could purchase us our salvation. Only the precious blood of Jesus. Peter says, we were not bought with perishable things like gold or with silver, but with the precious blood of Jesus, the lamb without blemish or spot. Nothing in this world could buy us. Think about that for a second. Like, really think about that for a second. The richest person in the world. I wish I could see you guys on the balcony. I hope this is, I hope this is finding a home in your heart. The richest person in the world could not purchase one person in this room's forgiveness. You can get a lot with money. You can buy an island. You could buy a new truck. You could get a lot of superior ice cream. You could get a bunch of stuff. But you cannot, you absolutely 100%, you cannot buy your salvation. So God paid that price. And the question is, why? Not because we were worthy, but because he loves us. And because we're not worthless. You're not worthless. You're created in the image of God. You're of more value than the birds of the air. You're a human being, and Jesus became one to give his life for your life so that you could have what? Life. 
And people need to know that. They need to know that the gospel is good news, that even though they're not worthy, they're not worthless, and that Jesus has paid the price. You might, another example might be, you might be sharing the gospel with the people in your life, and they may, some, may respond something to the effect of, you don't know my sin. You don't know what I've done. You don't know how deep my sin, my sin really is. I always hit people just with, with a question right there. I, I just ask them, what makes you think your sin is special? Like, what makes you think your sin is so special that the Son of God can't handle it? Like, we're talking about Jesus here. We're talking about his love. We're talking about his grace. We're talking about the eternal Son of God, second member of the Trinity, the one who's got all rule and authority and dominion and power, stepping down from glory, humbling himself to become obedient, even obedient to the point of death on a cross to clean us and wash, wash our crimson sin white as snow. What makes you think your sin is so special that God himself can't handle it? And so sometimes we, we talk to people, we're sharing our faith, and they're like, you don't know what, what I've done. If that's you this morning, I have good news for you. Your, your record of debt is not bigger than the payment that was laid down. Jesus' grace is real. You can make the best decision of your life today. You are never too young to make the best decision of your life. You're never too old to make the best decision of your life. That's not a shot either. He's good like that. And so the question, let me go back to that first question. Are you relying too much on the quote-unquote professionals when we're all called to be the priesthood? God did not fill us with his spirit for us to fill up a seat. The church, it's meant to be a bridge where the gospel goes out from, not a bucket. It's not meant to be a lake. It's meant to be a river where the gospel goes from. It's not meant to be an echo chamber, right? It's not meant to be an echo chamber of the same voices. It's meant to be kind of an inclusive community where people are added to the fellowship of believers. And so are you doing your part as a member of the priesthood because the church is called to be on mission and that's rooted within the Trinity itself? That leads me to my second point. The church is called to good stewardship. Just as we're called collectively to proclaim the gospel, we're called collectively to use our spiritual gifts. Write down this verse. Romans chapter 12, verse 4 through 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body and individually members of one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 22 says, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are what? Indispensable. This is really good news. This is really good news because we all don't have the same function, which means we don't need to covet what another person in the church is doing. We don't need to compare ourselves to what another person in the church is doing because there's contentment in knowing we don't all have the same function, and there's contentment in knowing that every person here, and this may seem shocking, but I want to just lay some truth down. Every single person here, even the person next to you, is indispensable. Indispensable to the mission of God. But one of the big reasons that we struggle in the area of stewardship, good stewardship of our spiritual gifts, is because a lot of times the church gets divided. Church gets divided. And so I want to just kind of, kind of pop up a little bit, kind of lighten it up, and then I'm going to come back after you guys. By a show of hands this morning, how many of you guys have seen A Bug's Life? Anybody seen A Bug's Life? Okay. So Hopper, if you're familiar with Bug's Life, you guys that have junior hires, high schoolers, you may have rewatched this, but Hopper essentially leads a group of menacing, terrible grasshoppers against Flick and an ant community annually, and every year Hopper and his grasshoppers take everything that the ant community has to offer. And there's this one scene that I love, where Hopper says that he's going back to the ant community because he doesn't ever want the ants to realize that if they all came together, he would lose. He fears the ants being united. And I think that's a good picture of Satan. What he fears most is the church being united. 
Let me tell you what he doesn't fear. Satan does not fear a church led by Ricky Hemi. What he does fear is a South Valley that uses their gifts because everybody here is indispensable, has a different function, different roles to play to advance the mission, to build the church so that you could go out and make a difference. Ricky's great, but he's one man. He's like Flick. He needs reinforcements. So the big question is, are we doing that? Is everybody here doing what you can do? Is everyone doing what you can do? Does Marcus really have to get up here and ask for 50 more volunteers? Or can we just get that thing straightened out at the end of service? Amen? Like, let's just get this thing straightened out. So I want to share three quick lies that Satan is spinning to keep the church back from uniting. So I'm going to share three quick lies. Can I cut down some lies? I'm going to cut down some lies right now. Let me preach about this. Okay. Number one, individualism. Individualism. Individualism is essentially a product of the Enlightenment, the medieval period. If you're thinking about those four periods of church history, it's a product of what's called the rise of scholasticism. And individualism is when people stopped looking to their community and to their creator and started looking to themselves for truth and for human autonomy. And individualism shows up in the church when we hear people start saying phrases like, my faith is personal. It's just me, my Bible, and a cup of coffee at Starbucks. I'm a, I'm a guest here, but let me, talk, let me talk about this. It is true while we have a personal relationship with God, we're called into community. This is the New Testament pattern and picture of heaven. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 and 47, the New Testament church pattern. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, praising God and having favor with all the people. Verse 47, and the Lord did the same thing. He added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I love that. One theologian, John Stott, on those verses, he said, the Lord did not add them to the church without saving them, and he didn't save them without adding them to the church. Salvation and church membership go together. They still do. Here's the deal. God loves you. Maybe you're here today and you've went astray from God and you need to rededicate your life like the prodigal son, like a lost sheep. God loves you and he'll pursue you and he'll restore you back into relationship with himself, the good shepherd. But when he pursues the one, he brings them back to the 99. That's how this thing goes. He saves personal relationship and that personal relationship finds its expression not just in daily devotion but in gathering with God's people look at the picture of heaven revelation chapter 7 verse 9 after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands individualism is a lie that is hurting the church because it devalues community and satan will whisper to us you don't need anyone but one of the most tangible places that we live in obedience is in community let me give you an example there are over 50 quote one another passages in the bible we're called to love one another we're called to encourage one another. We're called to bear one another's burdens. So to remove yourself from community essentially means that there are 50 one another passages that you can't obey. And so in community, we have this really good opportunity to express our faith. And what I love about community is it's like, uh, this probably isn't the best expression, but it's like a beehive for the Holy Spirit to move. Like, I'm telling you what I've seen in community. I've seen people who don't believe. I'm talking, like, adamant unbelievers, atheists, agnostics, people like that, come to faith. I've seen people break down in tears over their sin. I've seen people who once hated each other's relationships restored. But that only happens when we're face-to-face. And so, so we're called to stewardship. But the enemy, he just wants to divide us. He wants to disillusion us with church. Hey, you don't need anybody. You're doing just fine on your own, right? 
But what happens when we're alone? Our fire goes out. Like imagine a log. If I pulled a log out of a bonfire and I separated it from the rest of them, that log would go out. But the rest of the people, the logs in this fire, would keep burning. So maybe you guys know people, their fire is going out and it's because they're not in community. Call them back. Satan's a liar. Another lie he's trafficking in right now, ideology he's trafficking in right now is idealism. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with an unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We're all being changed from one degree of glory to another. There is no perfect church. And so what he does is he traffics in this ideology, this lie of idealism where because of the church's perfection, somehow Christ is no longer perfect. But we don't make him unclean. He makes us clean without himself becoming unclean. Like he wants us to believe that this whole thing's just supposed to be perfect. But we can't meet everybody's expectation, right? It's, it's not reasonable, And I think what's even harder is not only is the church not ideal or perfect, sometimes the church hurts people. And and what Satan will do in our hurt, let me me preach about this. He, He will do in our hurt, he will whisper to us, see the church isn't perfect so your faith is false. He, he will whisper to us because the, the church hurt, hurt somebody or, or did something wrong. And he'll say, he'll make a massive generalization. This is true about all Christians. And we'll believe it and withdraw from the community. And he just keeps whispering, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. So God must not be good. His people aren't, aren't perfect. To disillusion us with being good stewards of our gifts that we're supposed to use for his glory in the world. Amen. And so what I want to ask you today is this, I can't promise that a church will never hurt you or that another church is better, but I do want to ask you this question, is will you play hurt? Will you play hurt? I, I love sports, I love people like Kobe Bryant, I love athletes, they put their bodies on the line for a perishable trophy that has no real value, like no real value, and they, they put themselves out there when they're vulnerable. And I just want to ask you, like, will you play hurt? Some of you guys are playing hurt right now. And I want to commend you for that, but I also want to tell you, Satan hates you. Like, if, you, like if you're here today and you haven't thrown in the towel, for those of you guys that like boxing, he hates you. But let me tell you something, God loves you. He sees your faithfulness. He sees that you haven't given up. He sees that you haven't thrown in the towel. He sees that you haven't taken the bait. And he sees that faithfulness, and he will reward that one day. There is no perfect church, but he traffics in idealism to disillusion us. And then this is probably his greatest lie is that the church is ineffective. This one gets me fired up. Okay. Matthew chapter 16 verse 19. And I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will what? Build my church. You ever know in Jesus to fail at anything? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Satan wants his church to be divided. He wants us to believe the church is ineffective, that it's not making a difference. And you might be here today and see what the church is up against and be thinking that we're facing mission impossible. Ron talked about it. There's, there's war happening. There's these quote-unquote pandemics happening. There's uh, teenagers who are struggling with anxiety, depression, suicide. Sin is celebrated. Pastor, I hear what you're saying, but but we are facing mission impossible. That's what he wants us to believe. He wants us to be discouraged and believe that the church is ineffective. But I have good news for you guys today. Impossible is God's playground. Write that down. Impossible is God's playground. He does not need the odds in his favor. God does not need the odds in his favor. He doesn't need the church to be the majority. What he does need is for the church to be the church, for everybody to be on mission, for everybody to be a good steward of their spiritual gifts. That's what he does need. He doesn't need the odds. What happened? David takes a census to number the people of Israel, and God judges him for it. I'll give you another example. Gideon. Gideon starts out with like 32,000. God's like, yeah, you know what? It's not a fair fight. Pair that down. Mm, Still not a fair fight. Pair that down. He ends up with 300 guys, and he could have had one guy, and it wouldn't have been a fair fight because he had God. 
right? He doesn't need the odds to be in his favor. This, this is crazy talk, but he's, he's got us believing that the church is ineffective. So I want to change that frame real quick. I was reading a book right now. I'm working on my, my MDiv. There's a book called How Christianity Changed the World. It's by Alvin Smith. It's what he said on, on Christian, per, Christian uh, history. Christian, Christianity transforms lives and civilizations. In the ancient world, Jesus' teachings elevated morality, halted infanticide, emancipated women, abolished slavery, inspiring charities, creates hospitals, established orphanages, and founded schools. It was Christians who invented colleges, advanced science, and instilled concepts of economic freedom and fostered justice. Sometimes we get so caught up looking at the picture of our own moment that we can't see what God's been doing to build his church. It's kind of like, that's why we have to change the frame and we have to zoom out. It's kind of like my wife, every spring, every fall, God bless her, she goes through the house um, and she, she like swaps out all the decor. And then she has this phrase where she says, how does she say it? She goes, um, I really like that photo, I just don't like the frame. And I'm like, I don't know what you just said to me. Um, <laughs> And then she'll put a new frame on it. And she's like, man, that is, that's great. Don't you like it? I'm like, yes. All right. I, I love it, right? But sometimes that's what we need to do, right? We need to change our frame. We need, to, we need to zoom out. God's been changing lives and civilizations. Let me give you another example. Jesus promised to build his church. 2,000 years ago, he started with 12 guys. He started with 12 2,000 years ago. In the year 500 A.D., there was 37 million Christians. In the year 1600, there was 112 million Christians. In the year 2012, there was 2.2 billion Christians. God's been building his church, and it's pretty effective. Amen? So here's what I'm thinking. If... If that's what he could do with 12, what could he do with South Valley? There's probably, if I had to guess, there's probably over 300 people here this morning. If that's what he can do with 12 and the odds not be in his favor and impossible being his playground, what could he do with 300? What could he do with a church as big as one that requires two services to accommodate their people? I think he could do something pretty special. And we're all called to this good stewardship. Don't let him discourage you with his lies. We're all in this together. Don't let him disillusion you. Fight for people. They're valuable, right? Uh, um, Don't let him discourage you. He's been building his church, which leads me to my final point, is that, that the church is called to urgency. And not South Valley, because I just hear amazing things about this church, so this might be a little bit of a caricature, but I think sometimes the church does lose its urgency, um, so I'll just, I'm just going to say this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, 17 to 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we what? Persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known to, also to your conscience. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And what? Entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. And we say, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then he does a simple gospel for he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. I always hear people say that, that we are imposing our beliefs on people. There is a difference between imposing your beliefs and proposing a better way to live. Imposing is I'm forcing this on you. Proposing is, hey, man, Jesus changed my life. There's a lot of people in our church that he's changed and he can change yours too. I want you to consider the claims of Christianity and whether or not they're true and make a decision for Christ. We're just proposing that there's a better way to live. We're 
proposing that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. We are proposing that sin will never satisfy you. We're proposing that you could drink of this world's water and be thirsty again, but if, you would drink, but if you would eat of the manna from heaven, you would never hunger again. If you'd take living water, you'd never be thirsty again. You'd be satisfied, content, saved. We're proposing something. And we implore and persuade and appeal people. And sometimes while we're living urgently, sometimes people misunderstand us. And that's okay. But, but we gotta be faithful to invite people to receive the king. And you might be here today and that might be terrifying to you to send out an Easter invitation or to take ownership over South Valley's youth ministry because you're a part of it. It might be terrifying for you to to take that ownership and to invite someone. I wanna just share a a quick story. It's the parable of the wedding feast. You guys familiar? And servants are sent out and Uh, basically not everybody who got an invitation showed up. And what Jesus says at the end of the parable of the wedding feast is essentially don't be discouraged. Many are called and few are chosen. Many are called and few are eclectos. We are called to share and to invite. We plant one waters, but God He brings the growth and he grants new life. And so I'll give you a couple of tangible ways that you guys can start to maybe consider these tools to put in your life to make a difference. One would be to implement a rhythm of mission. A rhythm of mission. Basically the idea is this, is is just decide once a month, maybe it's the first week of the month or the last week of the month, implement a rhythm of mission where you decide to have a coworker or an unbeliever or an unchurched friend or family over to your house. And the best thing is, is like, because it's a rhythm and it's just part of the way that we do life, it's not overwhelming. I tend to get really overwhelmed. Like if I went home, I don't think Nicole would be very happy if I was just like, hey, so-and-so is coming over tonight and just spring that on her. But if we can implement a rhythm of mission in our life to host our neighbors and coworkers and friends, then it's something we can pray for and plan for. So implement a rhythm of impact in your schedule. One would be, this be for you guys, maybe they're teenagers, but adults could do this too, would be make a prayer playlist. Uh, We all have friends in our lives, you guys, junior hires, high schoolers, adults, where a song reminds us of somebody that we know. Uh, Make a prayer playlist, put some of your best friends and family members' favorite songs on a prayer list, or if you hear it come up on the radio and you hear that song and it reminds you of that person, just stop and pray for them. That's an easy way that you guys can uh, have those people's names recalled to your minds. And then also just consider either joining or, or starting a small group. Talk to Marcus and Seth and Ricky about it. We are called to mission. We're called to good stewardship. We are called to urgency. South Valley, I know you can make a huge difference. I'm pumped for your guys' Good Friday for Easter. God has told us what he wants in his word. He's entrusted us with a, mes- with a message and the ball is in your court. So I'm gonna pray for you and for Easter and for everything coming up that God would use this church and that he would bless you guys and that we wouldn't be deceived by the lies of the enemy. God's been faithful to his bride, faithful to his people. So bow your heads, join me in a quick word of prayer. Father in heaven, we love you. We are thankful for this time together. I pray that today the number of volunteers would be met. I pray that today hearts would be stirred to implement a rhythm of impact. I pray God for those who are playing hurt that they would continue to press on and that they would know that you see their faithfulness. I ask that every person here would have a sense of urgency, that they would know that we are all called to live on mission, that that's rooted within the Trinity itself. And Father, I just ask that you bless South Valley and I pray that they would know this is not a one-man army and Satan fears your people coming together to use their gifts that are indispensable and to use their talents, God, for your glory, because we all have a different function. And so I pray that you would bless this church, that you would inspire and move this morning, and that Easter would be really special because you can do a lot with a single invitation. So we love you, God, and we just thank you for our time together. It's in your name that we pray. And all the God's people said, amen.